Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and welcome to the first episode in a special holiday two-part series. Dickens had his ghosts of Christmas past and future to haunt a character. In the same spirit, our program offers the ghosts of Babbage's past and future. The first episode looks back 100 years at what would have been the main stories of 1915. The second installment looks at what in 2115 we might regard as the biggest stories of this year. Joining me in this spooky set of thought experiments is Oliver Morton, our Essays and Briefings editor, and Tom Stanage, our deputy editor. Ollie and Tom, welcome. A question. The year is 1915. So what are the most important stories? Well, if we've been paying attention, it's possible we might have noticed this guy uh, standing up in front of a bunch of physicists and talking about relativity. Some of our more regular listeners may realize that we did a lot of this ourselves a couple of weeks ago. Einstein's general theory of relativity is the scientific event in 1915. It wasn't a huge event at the time. Uh, It was a quite small event at the time. But looking back, that's definitely the big one. What they think is important at the time, and they're quite right, in fact, is X-rays. And that's what was given the Nobel Prize that year, was the use of X-rays to understand the structure of matter. A Nobel Prize that was given to the Braggs, father and son, at Cambridge. Uh, and I think is the only time that a parent and child have got the same Nobel Prize in the same year. So what was the practical application of that? Well, then it was to look at really very simple crystals to work out their crystalline structure and so to understand how various sorts of like salts and things work. So to do biological molecules was far beyond um, what what it was capable of then. I mean, interestingly, um, the structure of chlorophyll, which is a fairly simple pigment, was given another Nobel, was given at the Chemistry Nobel Prize that year and that was worked out by Vilshutter very, very painstakingly through a lot of experiments. But now we use x-rays to find the structure of all sorts of things. I mean, incredibly complicated biological molecules are now studded with x-rays. And this isn't just x-rays taking pictures like at your dentist. This is x-rays being scattered off arrays of, arrays of atoms in crystals so that you can understand the structure of things which are very far too small to measure in any other way. And a huge boom area. X-ray science has been one of the extraordinary, slightly underappreciated stories of the 20th, 21st century. Over 50 years in the second half of the 20th century, X-rays became more brilliant, which is a rather complex technical term to do with the size of the beam and the power of the beam and the wavelengths of the beam, at a rate of the the brilliance doubled about every 15 months. X-ray sources now are these things that are the size of football fields. And the Braggs would have been completely freaked by the idea that you can't have a modern X-ray source in Cambridge at all. You might have a modern X-ray source sort of like round Cambridge. But, you know, it's, it's just a basic part of how we now understand matter. 
It's also how we figured out the structure of DNA. Isn't it? Absolutely. That's all the most major, famous example. All major biological molecules that we know the structure of, we know the structure of primarily through X-ray crystallography. But another example of scattering that is um, interesting and happening in 1915, and in fact uh, involves one of the Braggs, is in a different area, which is scattering of sound waves through water. And uh, this is the first work that was done on sonar. Uh, it was all done secretly by an international collaboration of, of, uh, of French and uh, Canadian and British scientists. But one of them was uh, was Bragg. Another was um, Ernest Rutherford, who's better known for going on to split the atom and so on. But um, what they were all trying to do was figure out whether you could detect ships uh, using uh, basically by bouncing sound off them. We're used to the idea of how radar works. This is sonar, which does the same thing. It's you know how bats figure out where the walls are when they're flying. And uh, this idea actually went back um, a bit further after the Titanic disaster in 1912. Lewis Fry Richardson, uh, another interesting and maverick uh, British scientist, wondered whether you could detect icebergs essentially by making a noise uh, you'd have a sort of bullhorn and you would listen for the echoes as you made that noise in the fog and if you heard anything bouncing back at you then there might be an iceberg nearby and after thinking about it for a while he actually thought it'd be better to send sound waves underwater and bounce them off icebergs that way and this is exactly what Rutherford and Bragg and various other people started doing in 1915. The way they did it uh, in fact links us to crystallography as well because they use something called the piezoelectric effect and this is where you apply an alternating current to a particular kind of crystal which makes it vibrate and it then emits, uh, you put it underwater, it makes, a, it makes a sound. And what they were specifically trying to do was make an ultrasonic pulse of sound. Uh, and you can then fire this through the water and then listen for the echo coming back. And in fact, the echo comes back and hits the crystal and then causes it to generate an alternating current in response. So you kind of use the same uh, device to both send out and listen for the sound. And they had this working and in fact, they just got it onto some ships by the end of the First World War. But the whole thing was kept very quiet and Rutherford is remembered for lots of other things, notably um, splitting atoms, but uh, it only emerged much, much later in the 20th century that, uh, that he had in fact been involved in the early work on sonar, which began in 1915. An another big story of the time, not actually a, a scientific sadness, was the death in 1915 of Henry Moseley, who died in Gallipoli. Henry Moseley was also um, a colleague of Rutherford's and indeed Bragg's. It was a small scientific world that we're talking about. But he had done some extraordinary work just a few years before still in his 20s, where he'd shown that X-rays, as well as being used to study structure of matter at the solid crystal level, could be a way of un understanding the structure at the atomic level. But his study of X-rays and his creation of an empirical law about what sort of X-ray frequency you get from different elements was the first actual practical use of what's called the atomic number and would later be understood as the number of protons in, uh, in, in an atom's nucleus. And this is an extraordinarily important piece of work. It's the first thing that really starts tying together chemistry and physics at the atomic level. And I think it was Isaac Asimov who said later that, you know, in terms of scientific losses in the First World War, Henry Moseley is sort of like more or less at the top of the list. Who knows how the history of 20th century physics would have been different if that guy hadn't been dead on the shores of Gallipoli. There was also the publication 100 years ago on plate tectonics. On, on continental drift, not plate tectonics, but the two ideas obviously are very closely allied, but Alfred Wegener pu pu publishes on the origin of continents and oceans. Uh, he's been talking about this a little way before. And just looking back at it, it's just an extraordinary thing to do. He looks at the world and says, you know, it really looks from looking at fossils, and I know a bit about fossils, as though everything lived on the same continent 200, 300 million years ago. And that's not true now. So I suggest that this continent, which he called Pangaea, 
had been broken apart and new oceans had formed, specifically the Atlantic Ocean had formed in its heart and pushed the Americas and the old world apart from each other. And it's an incredibly radical idea. One of the reasons why it's not laughed out of court is that Wegener is a very respected meteorologist. His work on the structure of the atmosphere had been one of the people who'd first actually hypothesized the ozone layer, though he didn't put in quite those terms, gave him a lot of scientific credibility. And the other thing is that there's a sort of like myth that everyone completely poo-pooed Wegener at the time. And it wasn't until for about, I mean, the plate tectonic revolution, which actually shows how these things happen, doesn't happen until exactly halfway between then and now. It happens in the middle of the 60s. It's not entirely true, though. The thing is that American geologists become very hostile to the idea of continental drift for a number of reasons, some, think, something, some to do with the style of geology you do in America, and some to do with what they actually thought about how continents were put together. In other parts of the world, it's much more favorably received. For instance, in uh, South Africa, it becomes very easily received, and there's a good reason for that. If you're a field geologist and you've looked at the east coast of South America and the west coast of Africa, you will find that they are the same rocks. And it's very, very hard to believe that the reason for this is that there was some sort of like land bridge that collapsed into what we now know as a very deep ocean. But it was such a radical idea that I'm absolutely sure that great and good, though the people at The Economist undoubtedly were 100 years ago, they would not have looked at it and said, this is a great idea that's going to inform one of the great scientific breakthroughs of the century. Also, we didn't have a science section in those days, but um, let's just pretend we, we did. We did have a lot of interest in mining, though. There was something else that 100 years ago we wouldn't have noticed when it happened, which is the photograph of Pluto. Yes, this is the example of a photograph being taken of Pluto in 1915, uh, although Pluto wasn't actually discovered until 1930. But the story is that Percival Lowell, who was a wealthy Bostonian, and he was one of the people obsessed with finding another planet beyond Neptune. And um, so he, he paid for this observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, and they started looking. And uh, he died in 1916. They didn't think they found anything. But actually, in 1915, they had taken these pictures where there's a very small blob. To be fair, a lot of people were expecting Pluto to be a lot bigger than it turned out to be. And in fact, even when they figured out that it was there in 1930, they thought it was much bigger than we now know that it is. But they, they actually identified it properly in 1930, and then they went back and discovered that they had these earlier images. And there's a great tradition in astronomy of these what are called pre-discovery observations. And my favorite is that, in fact, the first person ever to see the planet Neptune, we know, was Galileo. Uh, he was looking at the moons of Jupiter in 1612 and 1613, and Neptune was in the vicinity at the time. And he, he writes it down in his notebooks as a star. And he even notices that it seems to have moved, but he he just kind of assumes that he's made a mistake because people are thinking about whether there are other planets out there. And so we now know, in retrospect, we can now say, because we know what the orbit of Neptune is, because it wasn't discovered until, until much later, till the 1840s, but uh, we now know that, uh, that he saw it. Similarly, Uranus, discovered in 1731, turned out to have been observed many times before, which allowed people to you know, figure out its orbit and figure out there was something wrong with it. And then that led to the search for Neptune. And that great kind of chase was what inspired Lowell, because you know, maybe there were more planets out there. The orbit of Neptune didn't quite seem to add up. Let's go and go and find another one. So uh, 100 years ago, they actually take the first picture of Pluto. And of course, in 2015, we've sent the first probe to Pluto. And we now have much, much better pictures than these, these, um, these smudges on photographic plates from 1915. We have these gorgeous, high resolution, hyperspectral images of a frankly, very strange looking world, but not a planet. And that brings us back, oddly, to relativity, because one of the things that has happened in 1915 with relativity is that another 10th planet has been killed. Because one of the, the only right. thing that relativity actually does in terms of telling you about the world is it says this 
tells you why the orbit of Mercury is as it is, and all you guys have been looking for another planet inside the orbit of Mercury rather than outside the orbit of Neptune to fill out the solar system, you can all now go home. And indeed, Pluto is a nice segue to the next installment in which we look back from the year 2115 at what the big news is in the year 2015. But we're not there yet. We have to close out this week's episode. You've been listening to Babbage, and please join our conversation on Twitter at EconSciTech and on Facebook at The Economist. For more news on science and technology, please visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.